Welcome back to the 133rd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the GOP's turn away from free trade policies. Can Biden really spin Bidenomics the way that he wants to? And a new policy change in China that may hurt and actually harm and cause a little bit of problems with American business. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive, ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into our daily debate. So in the past, I've, I've talked about how great civilizations, as they come to the end of their empire, the end of their era, they kind of lose prestige and they start turning towards protectionist policies. Now, this is, of course, not always the case. Sometimes governments turn towards protectionist policies because they see benefits in it. But are we as a nation coming to that point where we are going so protectionist, we're trying to ensure that our markets are insulated, that we're actually going to harm them in the long run. We're going to lose the competition that has allowed us to innovate, push, and allow us to really come out on top on the world stage when it comes to the economy and the influence that we're able to wield with said economy. Or is this just a a slight turn? Because we've definitely seen lots of protectionist policies, and it's really in the light of the rising China threat that this is going on. So, at least in my opinion, maybe you have a different one, and maybe that should be the daily debate. Rather than, are we at the end of the empire, because I say that a lot, why are we going for these protectionist policies? Is it really for jobs, like they're saying? Is it because we see China as a threat? Are, is it multifaceted with both of those things? Are there more aspects I'm not seeing? Throw it down in the comment section. I'd love to hear what everybody has to say. So speaking about these protectionist policies, let's jump to our first article. GOP shift from free trade is irreversible. Trump trade rep Leitzinger said, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce his name. I'm pretty sure it's like Leitzinger. But maybe it's not. But this one is a article that I found pretty interesting when I was first going through it. It is kind of a promotion piece for his book, no doubt. But it has some interesting ideas that I think need to be brought up. And some points made about the Trump era that some people may not have actually thought about altogether. They may have seen some of the tariff policies and some of the renegotiating of trade deals but they may not have understood the depth of how this affects our economy going forward and how hard it is to undo this shift in the GOP, but also in the way that we approach trade throughout the world. Because we also don't want to appear like, okay, hey, one administration to the next, the forward-facing trade policy of the United States can completely change. No, no, we have to gradually roll back some of these policies that were put in underneath Trump because we don't want investors to look at us and say, oh, okay, wow, they're one thing this year, they're one thing this next year, and it all depends on who gets into office because, one, people from the outside may want to interfere if that's the case, but also people just won't invest because they're going to think, oh, okay, well, like they kind of do now with oil. Oh, Republicans in office, so there's going to be more drilling rights. 
oh, there's a Democrat in office, so they're going to restrict drilling rights. Now we've seen back and forth, some Republicans have restricted drilling rights. Joe Biden right now is opening up some of these drilling rights. So it doesn't always hold 100% on these ideological lines, but we also don't want to create shocks in the market when it comes to people investing because we want to make sure that they have full faith in the U.S. government and in the U.S. economy. And that's how we ensure that we keep getting funds from outside countries in order to offset some of the funds that we're sending to other countries. And though our trade deficit is definitely high, we still don't want to make it any worse than it already is. So let's go to the first quote from this article that I really liked, and it really outlines everything that's going on. Quote, former U.S. Trade Representative Robert Leichinger said he thinks that the Republican Party's Trump-era move away from free trade and big business is the new normal. Leichinger, who just released a book on trade policy confronting China, told the Washington Examiner during a Thursday interview that the tectonic shift in trade policy spurned on by former President Donald Trump, including a preference for tariffs and increased protectionism, has become the main direction of the GOP and will remain that way heading into the 2024 elections. The bottom line is the Republican Party, if it wasn't apparent it is now, is the party of the working people, Leitzinger said. Quote, the party of big banks and big business is the Democratic Party. Leitzinger said that before the Trump era shift, the GOP tended to be a major supporter of free trade, end quote. And this is, of course, very, very true. You can see some of the shifts, or you can at least understand the premise behind some of the shifts towards more protectionist policies when you always heard Trump talk about, hey, we're going to bring jobs back to the United States. In order to do that, you have to create a friendly environment, one that actually encourages businesses to have jobs within the United States, meaning you have to make it more expensive for those companies to import some of their manufactured inputs. So maybe if they're manufacturing a smartphone, rather than making it cheaper to import the chip from China, you say, okay, hey, one, we're going to put tariffs on chips, but we're also going to create subsidies or free trade zones or business areas where you don't necessarily have such a high tax rate in order to make the chips here in the United States. So you see these sort of policies brought on by Trump in order to bring some of those jobs back to the United States. And this sort of protectionist policy is great if you think about it in terms of jobs. But I ask you this question. If you are creating incentives and making it preferable for these companies to produce their chips in the United States, then what is the consequence when it comes to competition? Are they going to try to undercut partners or other chip manufacturers in other countries who can create them cheaper, at least in their own home markets? No, probably not. And this means that NVIDIA now, they're okay, they're producing a lot of their chips here in the United States. It's a cheaper option for them to produce these United States chips. But when it comes to the chips that are offered in China, they're now at a competitive disadvantage because they are no longer trying to compete directly with those Chinese chips. They don't have to in that market as much because 
they're doing it here in the United States. And if you think about it even further, the Chinese government is obviously going to put tariffs on NVIDIA chips now because they're like, oh, hey, hold on, hold on, Trump, Trump, you're putting tariffs on our chips? No, no, we're not going to have it. We're going to do the exact same thing to you. So then you start to see that these companies are no longer operating in a world market as much. They're operating more within the U.S. market. And that's great for the U.S. Because if you want U.S. products that are created here and you want us to be less reliant on other countries, that's great. But if they're not directly pitted against competition in other markets where they're creating the same chips or same standard of chips at a cheaper rate, then NVIDIA is never going to feel that pressure to, one, innovate in order to create that chip at a cheaper rate, but also just innovate in general in order to fight off competition because now it has a smaller market that it can dominate in because the U.S. is preferring it or giving it preferential treatment to other chips that may come into the United States. So you can see how protectionist policies, good for creating jobs, and it is a good marketing tool saying, yes, we're focused on those Ohio plants that are building out the capacity to create chips that are made in the United States. But also, you have to remember that free trade is one of the best ways of opening up companies to other markets and ensuring that one, they are always innovating because you, in order to innovate, you normally... There can be a push from within the company, but a lot of the times it comes from outside sources. So if they have become dominant, if a chip producer has become dominant in the United States, they no longer have those outside sources to really fuel them and push them to innovate. They now have to start looking at different markets and they start to say, okay, hey, I want to go into the China market, but they have this one producer that's really good. We're going to lower our prices. Or you have the inverse when you don't have protectionist policies, then other countries and other chip manufacturers in those countries are saying, wow, NVIDIA really has saturated the market in the U.S. Well, we see an opportunity here. We see that they have a, a weakness, that they may dominate the market, but we can get in here because of our better processor or something to this effect. So in essence, with these protectionist policies, you can really sell them hard. You can really push them hard onto the population, but then you have to explain why the market is becoming stagnant. You have you see this issue with a lot of domestic Indian car producers. I was reading, I believe it was a Wall Street Journal article, and they're kind of cruddy cars because they don't have to face as much competition from outside sources, other countries. It's not that those cars don't exist in India. It's just that they have such high tariffs and they're not subsidized that they're extremely expensive, meaning that the homemade Indian cars have a more feasibly, uh, economically feasible car for the masses, and only the rich people can get those really expensive cars. So basically the Indian government saying, no, no, little car market, we're going to protect you. But if you notice, the quality never quite gets up to those Audis or those BMWs or maybe, sorry, BMWs or maybe the Toyotas that would come from other countries because they're at, they are 
have tariffs on them that put them at such a high price range that that homemade Indian producer doesn't have to face anybody at its price bracket, therefore doesn't have to be constantly improving and innovating. Now, of course, I think that there are some arguments to being a little bit more protectionist, especially when it has military implications. Do we really want to be reliant on China as the producer of some of the largest amount of chips that we would use in our military services? No, of course not. Do we want to be reliant on the fact that they are some of the largest processors of those minerals that will be used in battery technology and chip technology, which we are using more and more throughout our infrastructure? Probably not. So in certain cases, you can argue that this protectionist policy is one, spurring the innovation, bringing jobs, and is actually in a national security interest. But then the question is, where does that end? Because you could argue a lot of things are a national security interest. You could argue solar panels are because we want to generate clean energy and we want to move away from being reliant on other countries for natural gas. You could say the same thing about wheat that comes from overseas. Well, we have to make sure that our army is fed. We have to make sure that our populace is fed so that they don't revolt against us. You could expand that argument so much that it is... It does make me hesitate to say, oh, well, if it's a national security interest, eventually everything will just become of national security interest for protectionist policies to take over. So I think this shift is one that's very interesting, and I think that for the short term it can work, but I don't know if it's actually going to be beneficial and these policies are only short-term in order to get us up to par with other countries and then we compete openly, or if they become so what's the word, self-repeating, in that they create a cocoon around us, and since we can't compete on the world stage, we, we have to create more protectionist policies. We'll see which one happens. I think the spirit of America is more the former rather than the latter. I feel like once we're up to snuff, we'll try to go on the world stage and really compete. But that doesn't mean that it will happen that way. And it's a very interesting shift, and one that is being picked up by the Biden administration as well especially with a lot of his legislation that he put through, like the CHIPS Act, which is very protectionist in its nature. So you kind of see this shift, not just in Trump, but in Biden. And this is part of his Bidenomics, or at least part of what's going on there. So I want to shift to our second article from the American Prospect. Can Democrats sell Bidenomics? And if you can't see the through line here, it's protectionist policies. And then the final article will be about China, which is the reason that we're actually employing a lot of these protectionist policies. But there is more to this conversation than just protectionist policies on Joe Biden's part, because they're trying to spin Bidenomics as a way to sell the current economy as being really beneficial for a large majority of the U.S. population. And that doesn't necessarily feel true. A lot of people don't see it in their checkbooks. They look at their bank account. They're like, oh, you know, I, I have some savings, not really enough to survive a few a disaster or maybe a terrible situation that happens medically or on the road. But, you know, I'm getting by, but inflation's really stabbing me in the side. It's really annoying me. And that is not what Biden really wants to focus on. He doesn't want to send that message. And he has his little spin masters out there trying to make the economy seem better than it is. And that's what Bidenomics is. And this author kind of defends Bidenomics as well. Is, is, they're definitely critical of the fact that the White House is trying to sell 
Bidenomics and saying it's probably going to be a hard sell, but they're out there still spinning the web as well. Quote, the White House has begun to roll out messaging around something that will plainly be a central part of President Biden's re-election campaign, the economy. With the best job creation record at this point in his presidency since early, since either Franklin Delano Roosevelt by raw numbers or by Ronald Reagan in his first term by percentage growth, unemployment steadily below 4%, inflation falling, and real wage growth turning positive, there is a lot to boast about. So let's stop here. Real wage growth is wage growth that outstrips inflation, meaning that you're actually earning enough extra money or getting a raise that actually offsets the higher prices due to inflation. And they say, oh, it's finally turning positive. That is fair. But also remember, people probably have made up their mind to some degree since the last two years. It has not been positive at all. Inflation has been outstripping wage growth up until this point. And also, it's just one data point. I do agree. Yes, it turned positive now. But what if it doesn't turn out positive in the next few months? What if when Jerome Powell has to start tamping down or, sorry, raising the interest rates in order to tamp down on inflation more, you see the job market get a little bit looser and not necessarily be as tight and as hot, meaning that people start laying off people because these interest rates are putting the squeeze on businesses. You know, these are there are lots of factors to come here. And there are lots of factors that they're ignoring and they're looking at it right this second rather than saying, well, okay, maybe 25% of the population hasn't fully made up their mind on Biden. And the other part of the population is either for and against. The people that are against are going to look at the first two years and how their life has been affected by the policies underneath Biden. And they're going to say, no, this inflation was out of control. It threw me off my rhythm for two years. And I'm sorry, the American people are not that gracious. They're not going to say, oh, the first three years were terrible, but that last year, though, that last year was really good. Don't get me wrong. People have a very short memory, and maybe Biden can spin past this, and maybe this messaging will help do that, but a large majority of people who have already made up their mind that they're not voting for him know exactly why they're not voting for him, and they're not going to let go of it just because he comes out with new messaging. Now, this is, of course, for the undecided voter, and we'll see how this plays out. I think that the argument that, oh, it's just messaging, it's that, oh, this, the author goes on to talk about how Fox News really dominates this idea that Biden's economy is absolutely terrible. No, 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 they, they do dominate it, but it's also real-life interactions with other people saying, hey, did you see that chicken went up to 1650 for a whole platter of chicken thighs? And chicken thighs are some of the cheapest chicken you get, or the beef prices, or when egg prices went up like absolutely crazy. The fact that we still have pretty high gas prices as well, which, let's be clear, some of these things are outside Biden's control, but they're going to see these things, and they're going to say, well, you know, I really don't like having to buy that, you know, extra carton of eggs for double the price that it would have been before. And I don't I think that may have something to do with the fact that it started after a particular person got into office. And this idea that it's always just messaging. Oh, well, the messaging is wrong. That's where it's like, no, maybe the policy is wrong. And it's not that people don't hear your message correctly. It's just that you're going about it in the wrong way. But 
you know, maybe that's unfair of me. So let's go back to this quote and talk more about the, the beauties of Bidenomics. Quote, his plan, Bidenomics, is rooted in the recognition that the best way to grow the economy is from the middle out and bottom up. This is something that you heard from him during his first campaign. Quote, says a White House press representative. In some ways, though, it is diffi- a difficult case to make. Biden's ambitious attempt to transform America welfare state was mostly a flop, but his biggest obstacle probably has more to do with perception than anything else, suggesting that a sustained messaging effort might bear real fruit. It remains to be seen, however, whether Biden or his party can manage that, end quote. And no, sustained messaging effort might bear out. Sure, the messaging might work, or... Inversely, the messaging will be seen as wrong because if you can't actually affect the ground terms, if you can't actually affect the things that people find to hurt or help them, then the messaging won't matter. And the thing I think the the political operatives know this, but they have to at least push the messaging and they have to say, okay, we're going to breeze past the fact that we're putting in policies that are going to help people, maybe in the long run, or at least are trying to help people, but they don't have that immediate effect on people's lives. Do people really understand what the change in real wage growth is? And I'm sorry, not trying to be mean. Most people probably don't truly understand what that is. I didn't understand what that was until maybe uh, a year ago, and even then I had to be reminded about a week ago, and then when reading this article as well, I had to relook it up. People don't understand what that is happening there, and maybe they're the rare people that are actually getting these wage increases. That is definitely possible, and in that case, they will vote for Biden. But just throwing out these numbers, saying, oh, yes, 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 we have real wage growth that's turning positive. Oh, we have uh, unemployment steadily below 4%. Unless it directly touches the people, then it's not going to be taken into account. And you know what directly affects people? You know what people get hit with the most? Inflation. And you know why? Because they have to eat. They have to go to these stores. They have to go to Walmart. They have to go to Target. And they have to see the prices of their eggs, of their milk, of their meat, of these goods that are actually healthy rather than the cruddy food that's in the middle of the store. They see these goods going up. They see how inflation is affecting their monthly budget, and it's hurting their pocketbook, which means they're not going to have a positive light of Joe Biden, no matter what the other statistics are. And I'm sorry if that's sad and demeaning that we only focus on one thing, but like I said, inflation directly touches their lives in a way that a lot of this other stuff doesn't. And this is something that he needs to empower Jerome Powell to really get under lock and key before the 2024 election. Otherwise, he will not win. Otherwise, Bidenomics won't matter. No matter how much you flaunt the statistics, like I just said, you have to make sure that inflation, the one thing that people interact with the most or deal with the most when it comes to economic issues, is under control. And I don't know if Biden will be able to do so. And also, you have to remember that the push from the Republicans and a lot of the other Fox Newses and some other media channels 
really talk about how inflation is hurting the pocketbook. So you also have negative messaging about this from the other side of the aisle. And the author wants to talk about how the fact that, oh, well, Biden doesn't have a lot of positive messaging agencies like Fox News is for Republicans behind him. And when I read that, I kind of just scoffed. I was like, are you serious? I'm not trying to say that MSNBC, CNN, NBC are completely biased in Biden's favor. They're willing to call him out on some things. But for the most part, and I'm being really sarcastic there, they call him out on barely 1% of anything. For the most part, they are going to go along with this and they're going to talk about Bidenomics and they're going to give all the good statistics that Biden's putting out there. They're going to have a literal, I think, if you have access to inside of one of these companies, you will get a fact sheet and then the person, the anchor on air, will read parts of that fact sheet about, oh, well, look at this fact, look at this number, look at this number, and this is how it affects you as the average American. The average American doesn't care. I'm sorry. The average American is not going to sit there and say, oh, you know what? You know what? Unemployment is still at 4%, and that is great. They're going to say, am I employed? Okay, yes, I'm employed. Now, am I able to afford the food that I want to buy for myself or for my family? If the answer is no, Biden's screwed. If the answer is yes, then maybe he has a good chance at spending Bidenomics and selling it to the people. But that's just my opinion on that one. Sorry I got a little heated there. It's just, it's kind of interesting how it's always a messaging issue. It's always a messaging issue when maybe it's just no implement policy that actually works for the people that you want it to work for. All right, let's jump to our last article that comes from the Wall Street Journal. New Chinese law raises risk for American firms in China, U.S. officials say. So we've talked a little bit about the ongoing battle with China and how the U.S. has put on a lot of tariffs. China responded with tariffs. But now we're starting to see a policy change from the government in China that could be a little startling to some businesses that operate there. So I'm just going to read straight from this article because it can outline it better than I can, and then we can talk about it afterwards. Quote, U.S. counterintelligence officials are amping up warnings to American executives about fresh dangers to doing business in China under an amended Chinese law to combat espionage. A bulletin issued Friday by the National Counterintelligence and Security Center warns that the revised law is vague about the con- what constitutes espionage and gives the government greater access to and control over companies' data, potentially turning what could be considered normal business activities into criminal acts. The amended counter-espionage law, which takes effect Saturday, has unsettled foreign businesses in China, end quote. So you can see here that they are trying to limit the amount of data that can be collected and what kind of data can be collected by American firms in China. And, you know, this is actually very, very fair. Because if you look at it from their point of view, they probably think or have a good understanding of how the business environment would work if it was like China's, which is if you are a corporation or you are a company in China operating in a different country, even though you're in that other country, but you're based in China, 
No, no, no. You're not separate. You're not your own entity. You report to the Communist Party of China. Every single business is liable under Chinese law in order to comply with the Communist Party of China or the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. So under that assumption, under their worldview, any company that is based in the United States and is incorporated there could potentially be a, I don't want to say a wing, but could potentially give their data or be forced to give their data that they receive about Chinese citizens over to the United States government. Now, maybe the U.S. government will file warrants or they'll use the CIA, the FBI, to really convince these companies to give over the data. Maybe that is truly what is happening. But for the most part, we would like to assume that American businesses don't just give over data about their customers to the U.S. government, especially in other countries. So it does seem that, mm, you know, maybe they're being a little bit over paranoid here. But, you know, maybe there is something to it. I won't deny that. But with the way that they're wording this counter espionage law, it is so vague that basically if they don't like the way that you're operating, they could find a way to mess you over, to screw you over, to put you or other executives in jail, to verify or just sorry, justify a way to put sanctions on you or your company. And the U.S. officials, they may be overblowing this a little bit in order to scare people out of China, but I think there is a serious threat here, which is we are headed towards another Cold War with China, just like we had with Russia. You see it in the political rhetoric on both sides, not willing to fully step down. There is some capitulation on the side of the United States, but even then, we want to seem like the more moderate country. We want to seem like we're not the bad guy to our own people. We want to appear like we're willing to confront China. But then we enact sanctions, tariffs, and then we also try to create policies that advantage us over China, like the CHIPS Act, which basically says if it's a component, if it's part of a chip that's made in China, a U.S. company cannot import it. It cannot be used in certain types of technology. And we can't sell parts to China either. So you see this escalation in, a, I would say, a trade war. And this is because we, as the United States, fear the potential of China as an emerging economy. And in doing so, we're trying to protect ourselves. We're trying to push back. And now China is responding by saying, well, hey, you got lots of business interests here in China. And we can make your life really, really hard. And I think it's kind of a subtle way of saying to the U.S. government, hey, we will retaliate. If you try to screw us over anymore, if you're trying to make our lives even harder, we will make it hard for your businesses to operate here within our country. And this is really devastating because a lot of manufacturing is still based in China. A lot of large markets are still based in China. And company leaders are going to run to the U.S. and say, no, 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 hey, hey, stop, please, please. They're going to run to their lobbyists and to the congressmen and senators and beg them on their hands and knees not to provoke China anymore because they don't want to lose access to this lucrative market. They don't want to lose access to the data that they have been trying to gather there. And it's ironic that the Chinese will use said data in order to put them away, potentially, if that company or the U.S. government decides to 
piss them off. And we've seen this kind of hostage politics by the Chinese before. Uh, remember the two Canadians that were held captive? I don't know if we necessarily got a reason besides the fact that they believe that they were spies, which we don't know if is 100% legit or not. But they're still willing to take people hostage and then use them as bargaining chips in order to get their people out of terrible, hot situations in the other countries or in order to pressure other countries to, you know, kind of do their bidding or to back off from their hostilities. So we've seen these kind of practices before. I wouldn't be surprised if something terrible happens to a U.S. citizen or a U.S. company executive who's in China if the U.S. continues to provoke China moving forward. And I'm not saying that should totally deter us because we can't let this kind of bullying and hostage taking define how we interact with the country. But it will be sad to see this happen if it does. And especially under the guides of this new law that, or the way they're reformulating the law because we could see it coming from a mile away. But that's just my take on it. You can see how the tariff problems, the anti-free trade policies can come back to bite us in the butt. And how protectionist policies, while they may seem good and can be very marketable to citizenry of the country, like I said, when it comes to foreign relations, it can come back to bite us in the buttocks. All right, but that's enough negative stuff about that. Let's jump into our daily delight. This one comes from Laughing Squid. Curious squirrel visits dog daily through window. You know, sometimes neighbors, they can be a little bit annoying, but other times... They can be something that causes you or gives you a great sense of joy. Quote, a wild squirrel named Helen adorably visits a white Labrador retriever named Oliver through the living room window each day. According to their human, Trisha Roberts, and also I love how it says their human, not her human, not the live Oliver's human, but now that she's named Helen, they're both hers. Uh, Oliver, quote, Oliver didn't seem to care about Helen's visits at first, but slowly began looking forward to them, end quote. And, you know, Helen is definitely persistent for sure. The squirrel, you know, she is not giving up on this idea that she's going to be friends with Oliver. Quote, I think it's a little one-sided because sometimes Oliver will just turn around and turn his head back towards her and Helen will, will stare. But when Helen doesn't show up for a few days, Oliver will look for her. He'll prop himself up to see if he can find her. Oliver eventually realized that Helen was kind of cool. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article or read any of the articles that were mentioned in today's podcast, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip where I'm posting Twitter tirades every Tuesday and Thursday. They're less scripted. I don't have quotes from articles. It's just kind of me going off and pontificating, even though I seem to have done that a little bit more than normal in this episode as well. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die. <laughs>